Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 10th, 2017, and my guest is author and historian Rachel Loudon. She is a visiting senior research fellow at the Institute for Historical Studies at the University of Texas, Austin. Her first, first appearance on Econ Talk was in August of 2015 when we talked about her book, Cuisine and Empire. Our topic for today is food waste. Now, Rachel, welcome to Econ Talk. I'm delighted to be back. Now, you wrote on your blog, food waste is presented in moral terms. It's bad, even a sin to waste food. This is a terrible way to frame the issue. And I, end of quote, but it does, I think, for many people seem like a moral issue. Uh, It just seems wrong to waste food. Uh, Why do you think it's uh, bad to frame it that way? I think there are two reasons. Um, The first one is that um, even if you accept that wasting food is bad, and I think most of us have that drummed into us um, from small children um, with the phrase waste not, want not. We can come back to that if you want to. Um, even if you think it's wrong, um, it is simply one among many wrongs and rights uh, that as adults we have to weigh. Um, the, there are other issues about food. Is our food safe? Is our food healthy? Um, is our food taking an inordinate amount of time to um, acquire and prepare? Is our food enjoyable? Is our food, um, are we expressing at a meal respect for other people? Um, so um, all these goods have to be weighed. Just take the question of health um, I like to prepare orange juice for my husband because for various reasons he has problems um, eating um, oranges um, peeled, but the the segments whole. Now, when I make orange juice for my husband, I can easily get what's called a a week's worth of food waste in one day because by the time I have expressed the juice from all the peels, the peels weigh three or four pounds, the average food waste in a family, uh, for a person for a week. Now, that quantity um, of waste, um, I could, in fact, do something with it. Those orange peels are technically edible. I could turn them into candied orange peel, but um, the heart quails at the thought of eating three pounds of candied orange peel a week. So they get thrown away. So they've got two values that are potentially in conflict, um, healthy food for my husband and food waste. And all the time when we're talking about waste, we're talking about weighing the problems of waste against other potential problems or harms or bads in the world. I want to come, let's stick with your oranges example for a minute because I recently mentioned on the program and I've mentioned it before. I find it such a compelling and interesting example that orange juice in juice boxes in many ways is more envir- environmentally friendly than um, what you do, which is to make your own orange juice. Right. And most people would say, well, no, it's much better to make it yourself. Because they don't have all the packaging of the juice box container. You just take the orange and you can pour it into a glass after you've squeezed it. And then you can rewash the glass, whereas the container has to be recycled or it takes up landfill. But, of course, as I've mentioned before, transporting uh, oranges in the form of juice boxes, which are square, rectangular, is much better than uh, – you need many fewer trucks than transporting it via – uh, oranges because of the space between the oranges when they're stacked in the boxes uh, in their raw form. But the other part, which I think I mentioned a long time ago, but not so much recently, is that when you're Coca-Cola or whoever owns Tropicana, the Coca-Cola, one of them owns Minute Maid, I can't remember. Coca-Cola owns either Minute Maid or Tropicana, I can't remember which one. 
But when you're processing the love, the amount of oranges and that Tropicana or a Minute Maid is doing, you don't throw out those orange peels. You grind them up and turn them into animal feed. So they don't exactly. get wasted at all. So you are uh, actually doing something that's relatively environmentally unfriendly, not only because um, you're throwing away those peels, but because you are uh, buying oranges rather than juice boxes, which is crazy. Uh, but that's, I think, the reality. Now, you could compost. Do you compost? Uh, I don't think in general we make enough food um, waste to compost. Um, in fact, uh, the orange juice example comes from Mexico, where um, orange juice in, in cartons was not as common as here. Uh, so here I have gone over to cartons, um, but I think it's an example of uh, the kind of costs you have to weigh off. Composting is another one. Um, when I was a child on a farm, all the food went out into Actually, it was the dung spreader rather than the composter, but it all went back out onto the farm. In a suburban neighborhood, unless you know what you're doing, your compost heap is either ineffective or it is a neighborhood nuisance um, because you obviously can't just put all your household waste into the compost and fats and oils in particular, which are one of the biggest sources of household waste, uh, food waste um, don't do well in compost. So, again, it's a question of weighing the options. As listeners know, I summer in Palo Alto in uh, California. And in Palo Alto, uh, the garbage can they give you is about the size of a, a shoebox. Now, it's a little bigger than that. That's an exaggeration, but it's not a lot bigger. Uh, it's it's shockingly small, and it's deceptively small. It's, uh, it's it, or deceptively large. I don't know what the right English usage is there, but it's mm-hmm. very short. That's not deceptive, but when you open it, you realize a lot of it is is filled with the side walls of the, of the can. There's very little room to squeeze in more than one or two uh, plastic garbage bags each week and they do that to encourage you to recycle so they give you a a larger than that recycling bin which which we happily fill up with the cardboard boxes and other things that we acquire over the course of the week Mm -hmm. but then there's a compost uh thingy and it's vile it's a it's a little green uh plastic box that you're supposed to dump your stuff in and they don't if I remember this correctly, and other Palo Altoans listening can remind me, I'm only there one little over a month a year, but uh, you, you're allowed to and even encouraged to just dump your stuff in there, not in any plastic uh, container. So in the summer, we take a, a paper bag, we fill it full of peels and, and other stuff, uh, plate scrapings, and then you dump that, that bag, you empty it into this plastic container um that you keep outside or you can keep it in your house but there's got to be some side effects of having that raw food sitting outside or in your kitchen for pests varmints love that word varmints uh, uh animals etc i guess that's a really high form of recycling is to let raccoons and others uh rat, rats uh and others get at your food but it just doesn't strike me as a very it's not very pleasant i'll leave, i'll just say that Well, Austin is just trying to go over to composting um, as one of its streams of recycling. And they issued bins to everybody and they discovered, if I'm correct, and again, Austinite should correct me on this one, two things. First, they'd overestimated quite considerably the amount of um, compostable household waste that households were going to put out. And second that people simply wouldn't put it out unless they had plastic bags to put in the bin. So now, and I'm not sure who pays for this, but it's a cost, um, they are offering um, compostable plastic bags to put your compost out in your bin. There you go. Uh, So this is going to sound bad. Uh, I I often offend listeners when I say this, so I'm going to try to say it in as Pleasant a way as I can. Um, when people say that food waste is bad, there's a religious aspect to it. So 
a lot of people don't like to be called religious who don't go to church or synagogue or mosque. So they find it, I guess, off-putting or cruel or inappropriate. But let me say what I mean by that. What I mean by that is the same way I, as uh, as a religious Jew, uh, I don't eat pork. It doesn't matter how good it smells. It doesn't matter how tastily it's prepared. And it doesn't matter how cheap it is. There's no trade-off for me. I don't say, well, this time it's such a great smell and it, it's the bacon is so appealing, I, I'll have it because it's really going to be delicious, which is the way we treat other things, like like the almond joys that accumulated after Halloween this year. You know, I, I don't want to eat them, but every once in a while, for the thrill of it, I have one. But pork is different. It's in economics, I think the right word is lexicographical. It, it's either on or off. I don't, I don't, there's no price effect. I just don't, it's not my preference function, be another way to, to say it. So I think for some people, waste is that same way. Um, it's just, it's bad. As you said, a lot of people just frame it as a moral issue. And these trade-offs that you're suggesting should be there for safety or other things, people don't like the idea of that. They just don't want to have any food waste because it's wrong. Do you think that's an accurate summary of the way some people feel about it? I'm sure it is. And um, I'm curious about uh, why it should be regarded this way. It's clearly not new. Um, if you go back, and I'm sure you can go back further than this, right back to traditional religions, which tend to have um, taboos on waste. But just to keep it within kind of nearly living memory, if you go back to World War I, um, there was an enormous campaign against food waste that was conducted in just these terms, that it was a moral absolute. And then uh, I, I'm interested in what underpins what that kind of uh, moral talk. Um, and now, of course, the environment creeps into it. But traditionally, it was that somehow if you waste food, someone else is suffering because that food could feed somebody else. In uh, World War One and World War Two, it might be the troops. In World War One, it could be sent to feed the starving Belgians. After World War Two, it could be sent to feed the starving Africans. And now, um, the argument, or one of the arguments against food waste, is it can be sent to feed the food insecure in the United States. Now, whether it can, in many cases, obviously it can't. I mean, children figured that out about um, <laughs> on the first you know, day. The claim, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the claim about the Africans very early on. But um, I think there is that lurking feeling that somehow, if we, if I throw food away, somebody else um, is is hurting because of that. Well, I think you're interesting. You make an interesting point about religion, more formal religion. Most religions have, I think, Judaism does for sure. A, uh, it's a you should you're not a lot you're not you're not allowed to waste because it, it's divine. The world is is a gift from God, and if you're wasting it, then you've you've not appreciated the gift. So um, that's that, that's the sort of motivation for the non-religious. This this point about the the, the starving issue is. I think the idea would be it's invoking that kind of moral sanction. It's saying the real goal isn't to get people to eat their Brussels sprouts. The real goal – it's a terrible example to use given that you're talking about the Belgians. But the real goal is to get people to make less to start with, I think, is, is the idea, and thereby reduce waste and thereby free up supply for people elsewhere. And that's – you're right. I think that's – that's not a, a bad idea that we shouldn't overeat. Uh, it's in our natural incentive not to overeat. We often struggle with it because we like food and it's relatively inexpensive today relative to the past. But I think the idea is very – in wartime when there's, quote, not enough to go around. I say, quote, because there's never enough to go around with most things. But especially in wartime when the, the constraints on, on production of food is, are, very, are very large and binding – then you often will want to encourage people to make less than they otherwise would and thereby 
free up supply for other people. And that's that's not a bad idea. But but you're right. The argument that uh, children are starving in Africa and when the kid sees that, that if you don't comply with the finish your plate, the food gets scraped into the garbage, I think the kid catches on pretty quickly. It's not a very good argument. Of course, it's sometimes used to make them feel just guilty. They're starving children. How dare you not eat? So I guess right. there's something to that. But No, I, I mean, I think one of the problems is the word waste um, because the, the very word carries a huge emotive punch. Um, I think of it as a historian in terms of food let's call them systems, um, whether it's um, a regional system or a national system or now a transnational system. Um, we've got kind of three situations. You don't have enough food. Well, that's a disaster, and nobody wants to have not enough food. Or you have just enough food, which is actually both incredibly difficult to achieve and very, very tricky because you never know when there is going to be um, uh, some fungal disease, climatic disaster, um, warfare, or you have um, a surplus in the system. And a surplus in the system is, I think, um, tremendously much to be... uh, Desired because it is the only way you can have food security. And so then the question becomes um, not one of um, sort of moral, uh, the moral um, problem of waste, but the economic one of um, what kind of surplus do you need and how much can you keep that surplus moving through the system um, so that it's minimized. What's the optimal kind of surplus? But in most countries, no one is in charge of the food supply. It's a, up to the individual farmers, retailers, grocers, bakers, consumers. And there's a certain natural impulse to surplus that's built into that system through self-interest, right. not through some policy decision made by somebody. And ironically, of course, uh, we are this month uh, – the word celebrating seems inappropriate, uh, commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. And the Russian Revolution, one of the things that was notable about it was that they had trouble feeding their own people, despite the incredible um, fecundity of the uh, of the Ukraine and the ability to grow wheat there. They always somehow had a bad wheat harvest. There was bad weather for Decades, evidently, after the Russian Revolution, and of course, that's a joke. The system was not incentivized to get people to make enough food, and they killed a lot of their farmers, actually, uh, which certainly discouraged farming. Uh, so in America, however, and in France, and lots – you don't have to be a hardcore capitalist country to do this. Uh, bakers every day make almost always too much bread, and I, you know, I celebrated the bread market in my poem, It's a Wonderful Loaf, and uh, some people – reacted that poem by saying, well, it's a horrible thing that there's always bread available because a lot of it gets wasted. And I think your point about waste is the exact right point. If I show up in the store to get rye bread and they don't have it, and I have to go now to a different store to look for it again, what's been wasted is my time. And I'll never get that back. Whereas uh, to produce a little extra bread, that some of it might get left over, but the baker never wants to confront a a hungry customer with sorry we're out so they'll always have an incentive to produce a little too much which means that the price of bread is a little higher than it otherwise be uh you could go to a bakery a baker could try to thrive by having cheaper bread which would sometimes not be available because they'd be out because they were too they weren't uh they weren't willing to produce that surplus in case demand was a little higher than usual that day but i think most of most consumers prefer the surplus and I, the other thing to emphasize, of course, is that the baker doesn't typically want to throw it out. They want to do something with the bread, which they will if it's possible legally to use the bread somewhere else or to sell it as day old or to do other things with it. Exactly. Um, and the farmer doesn't want to have uh, unsold crops in his field and the um, processor doesn't want to have uh, unsold vegetables sitting in the cold chain and the consumer um, although it's not always the overriding condi- uh, 
consideration doesn't want to spend a lot more on groceries than they have to. So um, they all want to do something if they end up, as they inevitably do, having extra. They need to have extra, and then they would prefer to do something with it if they can, if it doesn't cost too much. So let's talk about the if you can thing. I, uh, you and I both know about this recent documentary called Wasted uh, that came out, uh, and it's a it's a condemnation of food waste, and it's got a lot of dramatic statistics, many of which are hard to verify, but they sound horrible. One third of all food produced is never eaten. Forty percent of the food that is produced goes to waste. Ninety percent of the food that's wasted end up, ends up in landfills. The annual cost of waste is a trillion dollars, and um, 800 million people are starving in the world while 1.3 billion tons of food are wasted every year. So that sounds pretty horrible. Um, And what they do in this documentary is they go through the different aspects of the food chain that you just mentioned, farmers, processors, retailers, uh, consumers, and they try to show you different ways that people are conserving food when they can. And when they don't, they're trying to browbeat us into being uh, changing our behavior. So one of the examples they use is groceries, grocery stores. Um, it's a very interesting thing. I, I don't know the answer, but uh, one of their themes in the documentary is that when you pick up a, a pound of butter or a thing of milk or a can of something even, it'll say best buy or sell buy or some phrase that's printed on the packaging that tells you when it's not good to eat it after that date. And a, a lot of those foods, of course, they're fine to eat them after the date. They don't go sure. bad. Uh, but people are discouraged from, you know, chicken is one thing and milk is one thing. Those are one thing. Those are things that, that do go bad very quickly. But a lot of the things that are on there, it's also the same with, with medicine. A lot of the expiration dates I don't know. Is this a legal? I don't know if you know. It's, is it a legal thing that they're protecting themselves? But it's true that a lot of people are presume then that it's dangerous to eat it after right. that date. Do you know anything about that? I don't know whether it's a legal thing. I do know that um, Britain has recently begun changing those sell-by dates in order to reduce the kind of um, unnecessary waste that goes along with those, and that seems to me not a bad thing to do, partly because anything that can reduce fear of food at the moment, um, quite apart from the waste issue, is um, a good thing. We have, in this incredible abundance, we have, um, because of fear and guilt, um, waste and due dates and what have you, um, we have produced a really neurotic um, way of thinking about food, I think, in the United States. So I don't know um, whether it's the producers um, uh, protecting themselves, uh, which of these are government regulations, which would also obviously tend to be very conservative in their estimates about um, shelf life of food products. Um, but no, it's a, it, it, it certainly... Um, increases the amount of food that um, groceries throw out. I regularly buy meat that um, is put in the, um, not the waste bin, but the reduced bin when it's still got three or four days, even to its due date, and often it would last long after that. You just give it a, give it a good sniff and uh, seems okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you, 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 you can tell from the color and the yeah, there's lots of the texture. Yeah. Well, it reminds me a little bit of the government uh, guidelines for temperatures meat should be cooked to, which are uh, designed to make the turkey that you just had for Thanksgiving. I think this we're, we're taping this before Thanksgiving, but I think it'll air after, a little after Thanksgiving mm-hmm. uh, or right around Thanksgiving. The the uh, the turkey temperatures that the government recommends are, are designed to make the turkey virtually inedible. Uh, so, but salmonella and other other uh, bacterial problems are, are not good, so you have to be careful. There's a trade-off there between taste and safety, and you should consult with your local uh, scientist for whatever you uh, think is good. I would never, as host of EconTalk, be giving people advice on food temperature. So, But my personal feeling is that uh, 
don't try this at home is that some of those temperatures are a little too high. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure you're right. <laughs> um, let's talk about farming. I think one of the things that's decried in this documentary, which is sort of uh, amusing is not the right word, but interesting, I guess, is is that Americans like pretty food. They like aesthetically pleasing food so that a carrot that's a little bit gnarly or a uh, various vegetables that are misshapen or fruits tend not to sell in America. If you go to the produce section of an American, a first-rate American grocery, it looks like a museum. I mean, the pieces are they're perfect. You go to Costco. Costco's uh, the the visual appearance of the of their produce is just spectacular. Sometimes it's not as tasty. I would I would argue, but but it's very physically uh, aesthetically attractive. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's true. I think we do care about pretty food. Uh, no, I don't have a very strong line on that. I mean, clearly at the moment there is a big uh, movement to sell um, ugly food, and a lot of people are picking up on that. Uh, I don't know to what extent it is driven by the fact that Frequently, uh, uniformly shaped vegetables are a great deal easier to deal with in the kitchen. Um, I grew up with what in America are called sunchokes and in England were called Jerusalem artichokes. They're little knobbly root things. And they're the very devil to peel before you cook them because they are all knobbly. And the same is true of many uh, kinds of produce. Um, it's easier to deal with apples if they don't have wormholes and bumps on them. So I don't know where the line between aesthetics and ease of um, processing, either in the big processors or in the home, uh, lies exactly. Um, but it's not an issue I've followed. Yeah, the, you know, the claim is is that a lot of food gets wasted because people don't want to buy it because it looks funny. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's aesthetically uh, unpleasing for other reasons. Um, you know, we, we've, we had Alex Gorner Shelley on here uh, talking about her restaurant Butter in, in New York City and how she tries to to do uh, use her vegetables from and her animals from nose to tail is the is the restaurant term meaning you try to use some you try to use everything some people don't like the idea of tongue or brains or lung or whatever those get made i presume into soups in most places but some people are like exotic things and they'll try them but they do not like to buy funny looking things in the grocery in general uh and so there is a challenge but i assume farmers don't throw it away it looks funny nobody throws anything away that can be sold no i'm sure in general in general i mean obviously if the costs of selling it are too high but uh, I think one of the, the implications of this kind of movement is that we've got a profligate culture, a throwaway lifestyle. But in the industrial world, uh, very little gets thrown away. You know, my favorite example, this is the creation of a pencil, which is one of my favorite things um, for reasons that I think listeners will appreciate from Leonard Reed's I Pencil. And uh, when they when they make, they take two pieces of cedar and they, they sandwich them around the uh, graphite, and then they so they they take a, a cedar plank, a small uh, slat, they groove it to hold the graphite, then they take another slat and they put that on the other side. So you have a sandwich now of cedar and graphite, and then they carve essentially the pencils out of that, the six sided pencils. And of course, there's a little bit of cedar that gets left behind because it's not square; it's six sided. Um, which makes it easier to hold, of course. And so those leftover cedar shavings, I'm told, they don't get thrown away. <laughs> they uh, Turkeys like them, another Thanksgiving reference. Turkeys like to sit on beds of cedar. So I don't know if they pay for turkey farmers to come get them or whether they s- sell them or are able to sell them to turkey farmers, but uh, it doesn't get wasted. No, well, I think one of the ironies of... Um, The current debate about waste is the whole fresh food issue because we uh, consumers have been urged on in the last 10 or 15 years to eat more fresh natural food and less canned and frozen food. 
Now, um, going back to the carrots, if you're going to can your carrots as slices, or I don't think you freeze carrots, but if you're going to process them into soups, it doesn't matter what shape they are. And um, they last very nicely as canned beef vegetable soup, for example. Now, if you go to fresh natural food, what you're doing is pushing along to the consumer, or the consumer is um, buying some of the most difficult food to um, use up in time before it goes bad. And so the consumer has to learn a whole bunch of new skills if they take very seriously the idea that they should load up at the farmer's market and only have um, fresh natural fruits and vegetables. Well, the thing that I've learned, I've learned a number of things from you, Rachel, but one of them, which I think about often, is that converting uh, edible things, converting food, processing food and making it chewable and digestible is a lot of work. And it's uh, it's in many ways the work of human civilization over the last 5,000 years is to do that, is to make things that are remarkably unpleasant to eat, like uh, a stalk of wheat, and transform them into a loaf of bread. And all those things take know-how and knowledge and a lot of labor and sometimes really good teeth. And so, you know, this is just another example of that point. Yes. Yes, it is. And I really really like that. Of course, that war against processed food is, is, again, a little bit of a war against the wise use of one's time, which is, in many ways, yes, I think, more important. Absolutely, yeah. The point you made the other day, that I think on your blog, or maybe it was on Twitter, is that there's a lot of skills involved there for most people that they just don't have. Like peeling that Jerusalem artichoke, getting that Jerusalem artichoke ready for, the, for, for eating, is um, that's an art. It's going to take some practice. Right, right. And... Um It's one, perhaps, of the many reasons um, why when I uh, see chefs um, arguing or or promoting lack of waste, um, there, as in many other areas, they're apt to overestimate the skills (laughs) of and the time of the average um, home preparer of food. Yeah, there's that. Uh, series, I, I forget what network it's on, of, of great chefs. They're really extraordinary documentaries of great chefs. And one of them is Dan Barber. And what Dan Barber can do in his kitchen is not what I can do in my kitchen. <laughs> and, and one of the reasons, by the way, there's very little waste in those upscale restaurants. They don't give you much food to start with. It's a lot of, <laughs> you know, it's very, it's very aesthetically pleasing. And um, uh, I'm sure. I don't think people leave a lot on the plate in those places, not at the prices they pay, I'd guess. No, I think not. Um, But the other side of that um, is that uh, for most restaurants, not to give a generous helping is to turn away customers. And that does um, mean that the doggy bag phenomenon or the restaurant um, leftover food phenomenon um, is one that uh, is a large one um, because restaurant helpings are typically so much larger than home helpings. Well, they've gotten so much better at doing things cheaply. It's exactly what we're talking about, what a restaurant can do in its kitchen versus what you and I can do in our kitchen, just like the orange juice uh, orange squeezing example, they get every juice, every drop of juice out of that orange in a way you can't. And they do something with the rind. And the same things are going on in the kitchen. They're, they've got so many, they've so many economies of scale for them with, to make stock out of leftover parts. And right. that for you or I is, is a nuisance because we've got to freeze it and put it somewhere and wait till we can use it. And um, yeah, for sure. Get rid of the soggy remains. Yeah. Now, you tweeted about this recently, and at the end of it, you you waxed philosophical, and I found it uh, extremely interesting, and I, I want to turn to that now. You say, after you'd made some observations along the lines of what we've been talking about, you said, I also like the freedom of making up my own mind about what and how I eat. I've been thinking about that for much of a long life. What do you mean by that? 
I think it's both um, a, a great benefit of the current generation and a huge challenge. For most of history, most people did not have a choice of what they ate. Often that was simply that uh, there was so little to eat that you ate your tortilla and beans and um, that was it. Um, for those who were wealthier, often they were put in situations um, where what they ate was carefully monitored. Um, religious orders made sure that um, in commonly feeding, say, a monastery or other religious house, um, it was easier for the monks to be abstemious because they simply weren't given uh, lashings of food. Um, or if soldiers had to be um, strong, again, they had communal feeding for the soldiers. So I think the idea of having choice in food is um, something that is a relatively recent development. I think it is... Um, an <laughs> an enormous increase in uh, pleasure, but it's also, of course, an enormous increase in responsibility. And I don't think we've worked out quite how to do it yet. I, I would not want to go back to the situation of very little choice in food. I mean, I grew up uh, and in the British school I went to, you had to eat everything on the plate. There was no choice. It was delivered to you. And that was it. Um, it was seen as, I think, a training in how to cope when um, you went <laughs> into the colonial world, perhaps. But um, now I like the fact that I can decide what I eat. I think um, being a citizen, the more freedoms you can have, the better is a change from subject to citizen. Um, and I appreciate it, but it is causing lots of problems, I think. Which is causing lots of problems, that freedom? Having that, having, I mean, I, I thought, you know, oh, abundance, it's wonderful. Everybody can have a choice. But, uh, and I think it is a good thing. I wouldn't want to go back to no choice, not for one moment. I think it is for an adult to be able to decide what and when you put in your mouth um, is is something it's, that is uh, very valuable. But unfortunately, it's a decision that has to be made three times a day or twice a day, <laughs> uh, seven days a week. And um, I think it's led for many people to a lot of anxiety. I, I think that will get worked out. We're the first generation, that's, or the second generation, really, that's had this choice of, of being able to eat what we want to. And it, it's a learning curve for people to have that choice. Yeah, I don't. As you point out, or as you're implying, our culture responds to that in various ways. And, of course, we're, you and I are both lucky to live in a place where our problem is abundance. There are still many, many places in the world where the problem is scarcity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people say that uh, – I've heard this number, one in six Americans is food insecure. I, those kind of sen sentences I don't care for because they're not well-defined and they're usually issued by people with an axe to grind. But certainly there are people in America who probably – struggle to get enough to eat, but most Americans don't. Uh, most people in the so-called developed world don't, and many people in the so-called developing world do have a very difficult time. So it's a it's a strange time, actually, right? We have we have about a billion people who, who struggle near subsistence in the seven billion person world, and we have a billion or so people in the developed world where they're struggling with obesity. And this issue of of environmental consequences, perhaps, or at least the uh, psychological challenge of of dealing with uneaten food, and um, it's a strange time. As you say, it's a new thing. It, it will quote get worked out. I don't know how it will be worked out, though. I think it's really interesting to think about it. Um, you observe also in that same uh, stream on Twitter. You say. Through too much of history, states, religions, and others have determined what can and can't be eaten. In the past 30 years, one food scare slash imperative after another, eat organic, local, natural, have been proposed, and waste is the latest. So it, it does seem that there's a 
faddishness is a little cruel as a way to describe it, but there is a certain alarm that's been set off in in series about these different issues. I don't think it's faddishness. I think um, it's, at least I don't think I would call it that. I think there really are people who genuinely believe um, that our food system, um, to use the phrase that gets used all the time, is broken. And that um, this is a symptom of wider problems of um, capitalism, of big agriculture, of big food processing, of fast food, um, global chains like McDonald's, um, retailers like Walmart. And I think that uh, these uh, successive um, scares um, of uh, fast food is bad for you and um, non-organic food is bad for you and you must eat local um, are, in fact, um, by and large, um, well-intentioned. I wouldn't agree with them because I don't think our food system is broken, but I think they are uh, uh, less fads than um, a way of trying to articulate and make clear to Americans a vision of um, a world where um, food and indeed society could be arranged differently. It's very well said. I have to think about the Russian family that came to America that we were connected to through the Jewish community in St. Louis, Missouri, and to help them become a culture to American society. They didn't speak any English, and we didn't speak any Russian, and we had about seven words of Yiddish that we had in common. And so it was a very interesting experience. And the, one of the first things we did is we took them to the – I probably told the story, but I took them to the – and I wrote about it in one of my books. I took them to a grocery store, and when they saw the produce section, they didn't think the American food system was broken. <laughs> Let me tell you. No. They wanted to – they just wanted to hang out there literally and admire it. They were so – you know, it's a cliche almost, but uh, they were overwhelmed by it. They were right. giddy. Uh, they just couldn't – uh, they couldn't imagine it, and they were just blown away by it. And so, you know, I think there is a there are many things about the system that are broken. Uh, we subsidize corn and in and other agricultural products for political reasons that I think are awful and terrible. But I do think that in those movements you're referring to, there's also a dissatisfaction not just with the policies that have created that food system or just distorted it. I would say. But also with the choices that people make that people just don't like. They don't like that other people are doing or eating fast food. They don't like that other people are not buying local, that they're importing food. They don't like the choices that people make. And I think that's where it gets interesting. Yes. And I mean, sort of riffing off that, I wouldn't say following it exactly. It's, I mean, again, the whole discussion is full of ironies because uh, one of the concerns, as you say, with abundance is obesity. There's a lot of worry about people being obese. And yet, at the same time, we are worried about people wasting food. Um, there is something to be said for not finishing the food <laughs> on your plate yes, if you um, are overweight because you have health issues and other issues and so, uh, again, the, the value systems that underlie this are much more complex and tricky to negotiate than simple imperatives of um, don't waste or eat local or what have you. And they all, in every case, they turn out to be much more complex. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in my household, well, at my plate, I'll just say it that way, uh, self-control is always an issue. And I wish I left more on my plate as a form of character development. Uh, very hard for me not to finish my food. It could be I've been condemned to that habit by my mother um, uh, or their genetic shortcomings. I don't know. But uh, wasting food is not a prob big problem in the Roberts household, for better or for worse. 
right? I think for many of us, yeah. Yeah. I guess, that, you know, it's interesting, actually. My weight right now is in a slightly better place than it was six months ago. Uh, I've reduced my carb consumption, which listeners know is something we've talked about here. I think I think it does help. I think the low carb diet, the challenge of it, is keeping on it, and that's that's something um, that I struggle with. But I think the one of the biggest reasons I'm successful at keeping my weight down is that my wife and I make less food for dinner than we used to. Uh, there are no seconds and thirds. It's basically a nice plate of food, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That that you don't get any happier after the second. The great irony is is that after the second plate of food, you're no happier than you were when the fir- when you finished the first. You were full after the first in in a some fundamental sense, but you had a longing, and um, that second plate of food doesn't really satisfy the longing either. But you wanted it anyway. Well, maybe you're a little moral tale in and of yourself of how people come to terms with the problems of abundance. Your mother was like my mother saying, finish everything on your plate, and now you are changing what's on the plate. Yeah, that's that's right. And I think that's the reason I think some people don't go to those restaurants that that are essential, that are close to all you can eat, right? Because they know they can't restrain themselves, so they... <laughs> tie themselves to the mast and uh, don't go in to start with. Yes. So the other thing I wanted to mention, and uh, it's a fascinating article, put a link up to it, it's by Mary Eberstadt. And she's, again, you might have a different perspective on it than I do, but I find it, and I'm not sure she's right, but it's provocative. And her view is that that food is the new um, source of our taboos. It used to be sexual taboos that uh, people had. Now there are very few of those. A lot more things are tolerated than were before. But we seem to have transferred a lot of our taboo-ness to food, uh, whether it's meat eating, whether it's fats, trans fats. Smoking is a, is a variation on it, of course. It's not literally food, but it's about what we put in our mouth. Mm-hmm. So we have all these um, – I think people – fad's not the right word, but people are judgmental about the choices that others make. They're judgmental about their own choices in a way that, that wasn't the case uh, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, even 20 years ago. What do you and think? it's not the case in other countries either. I mean, we lived 15 years in Mexico, and it was a real shock coming back and seeing – the moralization of food in this country, um, where every bite you take, I mean, food is always moralized, of course. I mean, it has been since the beginning of time, but the extent to which that's happened in the United States is quite extraordinary. And again, I don't think it's just accidental. I think um, there is a sense that um, if you can... um, persuade the consumer that choices are moral issues. Um, You can um, include them in or recruit them to or demonstrate to them um, the importance of uh, wider political concerns about um, everything that I would really include in the moral realm like equality to uh, more dubious things like uh, weight being a sign of self-control and maturity. And um, this has, uh, food has become the kind of carrier for all this, or for a large amount of this um, concern. There's a brilliant uh, skit on, I found it on YouTube, I don't know where it was from, but the, the meat eater who shows up at the vegetarian household for dinner and and as the vegetarian food is set out the meat eater says well don't you have anything for me and the host says well what do you mean <laughs> you can eat the other food he says yeah but but i like meat and you didn't make anything for me and of course my wife's a vegetarian my daughter's a vegetarian and yeah. and they they are not self-righteous about their vegetarianism they don't demand that people comply with it in their cooking for them they eat what I often even don't warn people. It's an interesting social issue. Should you warn somebody that you're a vegetarian because then you don't eat some of the food that they make and they'll be upset 
Whereas if you tell them, then they have to make special food for you and you're imposing costs on them and you feel bad doing that. So it is an interesting challenge. But that meat eater who feels uh, oppressed because there's no meat for him at the meal is just um, – it's funny because it's not the way the car culture works now. That taboo is – it goes in the other direction. So it's just an interesting thing of how how we try to come to grips with that. Yes, and I think it's made social – interaction uh, more difficult because, uh, you know, obviously so many social interactions take place over food. And uh, whereas before the assumption was that short of some real serious health or religious issue, uh, when you were invited to join a group, you would share food with that group. That was bonding in many ways um, now it is quite the reverse and uh, right from a very young age children learn now that they have a choice if they go to McDonald's they can choose which particular food they want and um, this is a, another case where you know, choice I think is uh, is uh, a great uh, privilege and allows people to express themselves in many ways. Um, But uh, there are downsides. And one of the downsides is uh, fine or not downsides, challenging challenges is finding a new way of uh, organizing social events um, so that there are different ways of expressing communality. Yeah, it's an interesting I remember when I was in um, in school. Uh, I think I was in I was in eleventh grade, but there was a there was a notorious kid in the school who who liked a warm hamburger, and his mother would bring him a warm hamburger every day. And my attitude at that time was that seems like not the healthiest thing for a child to be told they can have exactly what they want. But that's our world, and now. You know, everybody gets exactly what they want. We get exactly what we want at Amazon. We get exactly what we want at our clothing. We get exactly what we want at the dinner table. Uh, it's not uncommon at our dinner table when I when we were uh, raising our children that kids would eat different things, mm-hmm. imposing a cost on usually my wife. Sometimes I was the cooker, but often my wife, and she was happy to do it. She viewed it as a as a wonderful thing. But, you know, some of it is, I think some of that is our more child-centered, child-focused culture. But a lot of it's just our desire for, you know, having it our way. You know, having it your way is what, I forget which fast food slogan, is it Burger King or McDonald's? I don't remember, but it's not McDonald's. I think it was the way Burger King tried to differentiate itself from McDonald's as if somehow there was this extraordinary opportunity to avoid ketchup was going to transform their burger into something magnificent. But, um it is an interesting thing that we're all a little bit spoiled. We want our meals tailored. And there, you know, there's that great scene in the movie L.A. Story with Steve Martin where there's – and it's an L.A. movie, right? It's Los Angeles where every person at the table has a unique order. You know, I think it's just coffee. I can't remember exactly now the scene. But, but there's, a, you know, there's a big, very detailed set of instructions. And Starbucks is, is a perfect example of that, the, right. the, the, the variety of choices that you're given – is uh, would be bewildering and strange to somebody from 1950. You just get a cup of coffee. <laughs> right. <laughs> sugar or no sugar. Yeah, that would be right. It. Yeah. Cream, no cream. There, there were choices, right? There, it, it was, there was black and white, and then there was sugar, no sugar. Now it's Splenda equal, sweet and low, uh, raw sugar, honey, uh, just on that dimension. And the same is true for the, for the, the creamer, right? You don't just say... You don't want milk in it. You got half and half, whole, low fat, <laughs> skim, soy, right? It's an amazing – so some of it's just the incredible wealth and, and luxury of, of choice that we have. And and some of it's is a, a form of self-expression, as you're suggesting, a form of – even of identity. Yes, I think so. Any um, Any thoughts on where that might be headed – the cultural side of food, you, you, you suggested that we'll, quote, work it out. Do you have any thoughts on that, where we might be going? 
coherent thoughts, I'm not sure. I, I think people have somehow to get happier with and routinize um, their food choices. I think too much time and energy is going into them at the moment. Um, people are coming to believe um, that if they subscribe to the paleo diet or the keto diet or some other diet, they can not only express themselves but um, probably prolong their lives in ways that I very much doubt they'll be able to. Um, it, um, In many ways, it's um, obsessive. Um, and uh, makes people, I think, very unhappy because um, the standards that are held out for people, um, whether they are extreme diets or whether it is um, brilliantly uh, delicious food day after day, um, are so high that people have a constant sense of failure, I think, where food is concerned, or many people do, that they can never achieve the food pyramid plus truly delicious food plus a keto diet or whatever the combination has to be. And um, I can't imagine that people will be able to keep up this degree of attention to food um, for the indefinite future. I think there will have to be some kind of shaking down where people say, okay, yes, we've got lots of food. Yes, we want it to be delicious. Yes, we want it to be healthy. And, you know, here we do it in this kind of routinized way most of the time. Um, so I think I see this as a transition period um, just because of the practicalities of, you know, the pressure of feeding three times a day. It's hard to do well. Um, what that routine will be, whether it will be that people essentially begin eating even more of their food away from home, at least in cities, whether it will be um, some kind of home delivery that takes the weight off the food preparer in the house, I have no idea. But I think something will have to shake out. Do you think... Um are there things about that broken system that that uh, bother people that you think are important that we ought to be trying to, to deal with that might make this better or worse? I'm thinking particularly about things like um, uh, obviously the food subsidies are one, but you know there are a lot of people who want us to buy local. We have a my wife belongs to a, a food co-op, a produce co-op that she gets a lot of satisfaction from. It's expensive; you don't get many choices. It's tasty. I like it. Um, but a lot of these things are not solutions for the world. They're solutions for people who live in relatively comfortable material settings and cultures. Um, and, you know, my view is if you want to buy local and you want to eat carb-free or you want to eat a lot of carbs, you want to follow the China diet, which I have a friend who does, which doesn't appeal to me at all, uh, scientifically or gustatorially, you know, that's your choice. Um, as long as you don't impose it on me, I'm okay with it. But it does lead to a world where there's lots of choices. And any thoughts on if there's policy things that you're worried about or that you think we ought to be doing that would make this easier or better? I'm not sure who we is here. <laughs> um, do I want the government to intervene more in... Um, food production and distribution? No, I don't think so. Um, we have already a uh, huge number of non-government organizations who are um, with relate, sometimes related, sometimes opposing agendas working away. Um, I tend to be rather laissez-faire about this at the moment. I think um, both the issue of coping with choice and the issue of obesity um, will uh, will find solutions, but I don't have a kind of roadmap for what they would be. 
Um, the more people who are trying different things, perhaps the better. I mean, obviously, there are all kinds of small things that need to be done. I mean, it'd be nice. I'm never quite clear about many of the things that are claimed to be very bad with a system. I'm not sure how bad animal welfare really is. There's a disconnect, I think, often between um, urban perceptions of animal welfare and what actually goes on in the country. I'm not sure... um, you know, as you say, many of these waste is incredibly difficult to measure. Um, and so I have less than total confidence in many of the um, numbers that are flitted about, about food waste. And you can go on along these issue, uh, these lines. So, no, I don't have a, a grand either map of what is wrong or what uh, to do about it, I do think with so many interested people, something things will, will shift. They've shifted so fast in my lifetime. I cannot imagine that in another 20 years, the, the scene will not look radically different. I look forward to talking with you about it in 20 years. My okay, guest today, me too. My guest today is Rachel Loudon. Rachel, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Well, thanks very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.